0: Hello, and welcome to the Fuel Run Recover podcast, helping everyday runners fuel better, run smarter, and recover faster so you can reach your full performance potential. I'm your host, Stephanie Natchek, dietitian, fitness coach, and a fellow runner too. As the owner of Stephanie Natchek Performance Nutrition, I've spent the last 10 years helping runners learn to fuel their bodies, level up their running performance, and establish healthier relationships with food and exercise. If you're ready to reconnect with your love of running, then let's get started on today's episode. All right, so before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to invite you to check out a few great free resources that I created just for runners. To get them, all you have to do is click on the link in the show notes or visit www.stephanienachuk.com. If you visit my website, there's a little pop up box that comes up and it'll prompt you to enter your email address and these guides will be sent right to your inbox. The first guide is my fueling guide for runners. So in this resource, you'll find my top fueling tips for runners, as well as some specific meal ideas for both your pre and post run fuel. If you've been struggling to understand what to eat, when to support your running and just figuring out like what those meal ideas, like what those meals look like, what kind of foods you should be including before versus after you run, what the difference is between pre and post run fueling then this guide is exactly what you need to get you started on the right path. The other guide that I created is my strength training guide for runners. So this guide includes both a PDF resource, has some tips, guidelines, and links to my YouTube series where I actually walk you through all of the exercises in the program. This is a great beginner strength training guide for runners who want an effective but efficient full body workout that helps support the key muscles and movements you need to run stronger and injury free. So once again, both of these guides are available together. I have them put together as a little bundle for you. You can just click on the link in the show notes or go over to www.stephanienacek.com. Enter your email address just the one time and both of these free guides will get sent to your inbox right away. I hope you enjoy these resources and find them helpful in supporting you and your running. And now let's get into today's episode. So today in this episode, I'm sitting down with physiotherapist, podcast host and author Brody Sharp. And what you're going to hear throughout this episode is a couple of references that I make to the Run Smarter book, which Brody recently wrote and published. And I thought it was such a great resource. It was something that, you know, myself as a professional working in this space, um, you know, found really helpful. And I think too, for every runner out there, there's so much to be gained from checking this out. The best part is that you can check it out uh, for free. Brody has made the first 100 pages of the Run Smarter book available. We have the link to download that and to give it a read in the show notes. So please feel free to check that out. I hope you really enjoy it and get so much out of the Run Smarter book because I know that I did. All right, now on to today's episode. All right. So this week, I am so excited to be sitting down with Brody Sharp, physiotherapist He is an author um, of the Run Smarter book, as well as the uh, host of the Run Smarter podcast. And he today is here to talk to us all about running injuries and some do's, don'ts, and some things that you'll find in the Run Smarter book. So thank you so much, Brody, for being here with me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me, Stephanie.
0: All right, so before we kind of dive into all of all of the lessons that I'm sure you'll you'll share with us today, all of your wisdom about staying injury free while running, I would love to hear a little bit more about your running origin story and how you personally became a runner. and then on the professional side, how you became interested in specializing as a uh, physiotherapist who works with runners.
1: Yeah. So the story kind of blends into the two. So I became a physiotherapist first and when I graduated, I was more into basketball, sort of playing higher competition and doing that into my mid twenties. And it was after that, I sort of gave up that career and my sister was actually training for a half marathon and she needed some accountability. She needed some like motivation. (laughs) So she's like, Hey, you need another, since you're not doing basketball anymore, you can Help train me, and so I'm like, yeah, okay, like relatively fit um, from the basketball days. So let me see how I go, and I just fell in love with it straight away. It it probably took maybe two, three weeks, which in the grand scheme of things is, is nothing, and yeah, absolutely loved it. And so transferring into my physio career, that was, you know, I was seeing anyone under the sun. I was just in a general practice, and whenever I would. Have a runner come in my door, an injured runner, I would be just buzzing. I'd be wanting to talk about you know, what races they have coming up, what shoes they wear, what their running cadence is. And I would just like, yeah, be really energetic and it, it quickly turned into my passion. And eventually, the Run Smarter podcast came out of that as a way to educate runners as much as possible because there's a lot of injured runners out there. <laughs> running and injuries are very closely correlated and there's a lot of misconceptions as we'll dive into today that uh, people believe this is the reason I get injured or this is what I can do to prevent my injury or this is how I can increase my running performance safely and based on evidence and that sort of stuff, a lot of misconceptions which can drive people down the wrong direction. So it's my goal to educate as many runners as possible, help them get back to pain-free running. And so, yeah, it just launched my career and ever passionate.
0: I love that. And and I, I had such a similar path and I think a lot of us do um, you know, in, in these professions where there's so many different things you can do, directions your career can go, I mean, from working in a, a private clinic or even in a hospital setting or, you know, doing this whole online virtual thing that is has just become so big for so many of us now. I was the same way when I first practice, same thing, you know, kind of seeing everybody, anybody, you you name it, I can solve your problem. <laughs> but when I would get uh, that client intake form, that that uh, request to work with me, and somebody would mention that they were an athlete or sport nutrition or anything like that, I would just be so excited to get into that first consultation and sit down with them and and talk about their nutrition for performance. And so, you know, same thing over, over time, it's kind of just narrowed down into specific specifically talking about nutrition for runners um but yeah it, it's just there's something that just lights you up about that population and you know when you have the opportunity to go all in like we have it really makes it uh, not feel like work doesn't it
1: for sure for sure i yeah. uh, i work hard i work long hours and i am never burnt out i've just been going for years just with a big passion so you know seems like we're on the right track if that's if that's happening and that you sort of get that sense
0: yeah, absolutely. So because you specialize in working with runners, treating runners, and and that's been something you've been doing for years now, in your practice, kind of in your experience of what you see day to day, what are the most common causes or sort of contributing factors that really cause runners to get injured?
1: Yeah, we can break this down into a bit of like a formula if people were to envision this, because In a general sense, it comes down to load versus capacity. So your load is what you apply to the body when you exercise, and the capacity is what your body can tolerate. So on the capacity side, if you can imagine every bone, ligament, um, muscle, tendon, everything has a certain capacity. And if you go for a run, if you go for a bike ride, if you do a gym class, you're challenging that capacity. And... Ideally what we want to do is challenge it enough so it, you know, gets stronger, because that's what we want to do. We want to develop and we want to, you know, have our skills build, but we don't want to overdo things. And that's where that load comes into it. If you if your load abruptly exceeds your capacity, you'll end up with an overuse injury. But what we see more often is it's a little bit more gradual than just, you know, someone running or sprinting and they get a hamstring strain rarely does that really happen with runners it's more of a gradual over time they might run one session and do a speed session and be really sore the next day and develop an injury but it can also happen gradually over time we have um, tendinopathies from like two weeks of just doing too much just that little bit too much but just just spreading it over a couple of weeks tendon gets a bit sore then it gets a bit stiff but also over months as well we know bone has a load capacity And we know that the bone adaptation phase and that bone growth turnover is a lot slower. And so that can happen over months. So you could overload yourself gradually for months and not reveal that you've had a bone overload until like that time down the track. And so everything has a different turnover, but when it comes down to what you need to look out for to reduce your risk of injury, we are looking at a very methodical how much you're applying to your body, how much is like a safe, what we call adaptation zone, how much is that sweet spot, that Goldilocks, not too much, not too little, and trying to foster yourself within that and trying to make sure that's what we progress as well because we can't just train within that sweet spot. That's not 5Ks three times a week and then it's 5Ks three times a week throughout the entire year. No, because you adapt to get stronger, we also need to progress because your adaptation zone also elevates as you develop into running further running faster and those sort of things and the one other element that i'll add is your recovery your recovery is super important in this load versus capacity model because you don't get stronger during your workout you get stronger after that workout once you've given your body adequate recovery it's this adaptation cycle of load rest recover and repeat that the body really needs and so why I say that is because you could do that 5K three times a week and be fine on one week and that hits your adaptation zone perfectly, but you could do that the next week and you're not sleeping well, you're not you know, eating well, hydration, stress, all those things that impact your recovery could be um, subpar and you develop an overuse injury just because your body is struggling to get through that training load recovery adaptation cycle.
0: Yeah, so it's not always about the workouts, It's not always about the load. It's about how well we are recovering and giving ourself, our bodies sort of the the space and the tools and the time to adapt in between the workouts. And I think that one of the the things that happens and just what I see a lot sort of out there in in the running community is you know people will have a, an an injury or you know a little area that's maybe stiffer, a bit sore. You mentioned like tendinopathies, for example. And they're immediately thinking back to like, what's the most recent workout that I did? Something happened during that one specific workout that must have contributed to this. But what it sounds like you're saying is that this could be weeks of buildup or even months of buildup towards actually seeing the symptoms come to the surface.
1: Correct. Yeah. Or uh, weeks of not sleeping that well or weeks of, you know, being stressed, uh, moving house, you know, having a newborn and stress and sleep affected. You know, these sort of things are areas like well-being, lifestyle areas that we also need to look back on and say, okay, how has this changed? Um, what's my work stress like? You know, what are my responsibilities at work and at home? Has that changed? Am I feeling more stressed? It doesn't have to necessarily just be the mechanical side of things, but yeah, that's that's often what we see.
0: Yeah, and and that's so interesting because I think that for a lot of runners, and we're going to talk about mindset, which I thought was something in your book that was just so interesting. But sometimes there's sort of this kind of mentality or, and and you get a lot of support for doing hard things, despite the the other life stressors, right? You know, if, if you share on social media, that you still managed to go out for this 20 mile run, even though you got no sleep and even though there was all these other things going on, you know, you get a lot of positive feedback for doing that. But I think what we need to remember is, um, you know, to adapt our training plan and being flexible when our other lifestyle factors maybe aren't quite where they should be, you know, being able to say, hey, maybe it's not a great idea to go do this really hard or really long workout that day. If I know that there's other things going on that are going to prevent me from fully recovering.
1: Yeah, I think all that sort of stuff. And people know that, you know, running slow isn't that exciting, isn't that sexy, (laughs) isn't going to attract that much attention. And you know, you can plan to go for a slow run and be like, oh yeah, this is my recovery session. Let me do that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm feeling really fresh. I know my friends are going to see this workout. Let me just increase it just a little bit. But also the personality of a runner. Personality of a runner is like, you know, they want to strive to better themselves. They want they've got a race to prepare for. So they're going to run a bit faster. They want to do their best possible time on this upcoming marathon so that's going to make them run a little bit faster on their easy days and it's just an environment that really pushes like their default state is
0: yeah absolutely and so to kind of help to explain because you know everything you shared is so interesting but i think for the average runner it might you know, hearing you talk about load and, and capacity and adaptations and, and these different zones, and you've explained it so well in your book, but one of the things that I really loved was a specific metaphor that you came back to a couple times and, and sort of used to to help us envision this concept, and that was your iceberg Metaphor. So, can you explain a little bit more just to make it really easy for people to understand what you're talking about here, this iceberg theory and how it relates to some of these different concepts that you're talking about?
1: Yeah. So, the first part of the book has 10 chapters to reduce your risk of injury. And most of those chapters at the end revert back to this iceberg analogy and how the chapter itself relates to that analogy. So, there's a lot of elements in there, but let me try and be as concise as I can. So you can imagine that your capacity represents an iceberg floating in the ocean and your job is to increase your body's resiliency to tolerate load. So that in regards to the iceberg is trying to get your iceberg as big as possible. You want to try and get your iceberg to be strong, to be resilient and trying to be unbreakable when it comes to the waves that it's subjected to. So the waves represent your training loads, your training sessions, whether that be cross-training or running or strength training. Every element bombards that iceberg. And what happens is, I know this doesn't happen in the real world, but humor me for a little bit, when that wave crashes into that iceberg, what it does is spray a whole bunch of water Onto that iceberg, and it sort of just trickles down. And hopefully, <laughs> the water itself kind of freezes where it sort of uh, trickles and overall contributes to the size of your iceberg. So, we need training load, we need hard sessions, we need easy sessions, we need a whole bunch of variety of things in the right balance so that it contributes to the size of that iceberg, but isn't overdoing things so that it damages your iceberg because you can have a really weak, flimsy, small iceberg and subject it to a bunch of harsh waves and pieces break off or like it disrupts the internal sort of structure of that iceberg. We want to nurture it. We don't want to hammer it. It can be fine. Like once your iceberg is big enough to tolerate those bigger waves, the bigger waves can be good in isolation, like every now and then, because we want those big waves to reach the all parts of that iceberg, but needs to be done in a really delicate balance and needs to be really methodical and careful because like I say, you want to nurture that iceberg and get that as big as possible. It takes a lot of time to build a small iceberg into a, a large iceberg, but patience is required and a sensible approach is required. I hope I helped explain that a little bit. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, that was that was really great. And I mean the idea is just that, you know, you've got this iceberg and you know, waves are good, but more bigger hard waves are not so good. And, you know, we we talk about that in nutrition, too, where too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing, right? We need all of our nutrients, and we need energy, and we need, um, you know, our vitamins and minerals, but any one of these things becomes toxic. If we are taking in far too much. There's always a potential negative from, from overdoing things and for runners. And, and I mean, endurance athletes, you could kind of extrapolate that a little bit, but definitely for runners, you know, just because of some of these tendencies that we have with a lot of drive and discipline and perfectionism and, and all of that, it, it's hard to kind of scale it back sometimes and, and get into the understanding that more is not always better or always required. So, balancing their nutrition and, and taking it easy, it's not always about like prescribing harder things for our clients to do.
1: Yeah. I put on a few caps when I work with clients because some are the runner, the go getter, that just, if I don't tell them to, if I don't put the brakes on them or give them some sort of restrictions, they're just going to run themselves into an injury. They just, want to run far, want to run fast, want to run often, have been in pain, they're injured now, they've been injured for a very long time. And you kind of need to take on the other role of encouraging them to do things because they think that running is going to increase their risk of injury or doing an Mm -hmm. exercise, a rehab exercise is going to uh, exacerbate those symptoms. And so gradually encouraging them to do more is another role that I play. But yeah, there's definitely a balance between the two.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so on that that specific topic around, you know, injuries and, and pain and, and all of that, for the average runner who's listening to this that, you know, is, is going along and, and they're following their training program and, you know, they, they think everything is fine. What are some of those early warning signs of injuries that people can be on the lookout for that might help prevent you know, something serious or significant happening a few weeks or a few months down the road, like, you know, the bone injuries that you were talking about, what are some of those early signs that people can be aware of?
1: Yeah. So you could have, first of all, like looking into your training, being objective and looking at the data and saying, okay, how's this looking? How's my mileage been? And how do I think I can tolerate that? So if I look at the last three weeks and I've increased by, 15%, 20% 15 20% every single week, that might be a warning sign. But doesn't have to be a warning sign. You could have been sleeping poorly and to no fault of your own just sleeping really poorly. That could be an early warning sign. But I had a chat to Eric hegadis on my podcast and he's a researcher uh, working with runners. And I mentioned him and I quoted him in my book as well. And he mentioned there's four signs that can be signs of an early injury developing. And so the first one being fatigue, like just general fatigue, doesn't necessarily need to be with running, like you're waking up a bit more tired, uh, a bit more tired throughout the day. Your workouts, yeah, a little bit more labored, maybe getting a little bit more fatigue early into your run. No signs of soreness or stiffness or something popping up, but just general fatigue. Means that you're probably overloading yourself or under-recovering, so one or the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing does contribute to like soreness, and that is delayed onset muscle soreness. So delayed onset muscle soreness is fine. We need it. Uh, We need that to get stronger. But if that delayed onset muscle soreness is becoming more severe, lasting longer, um, sometimes, you know, on general, could last 24, 48 hours probably max. But if you're noticing it's lasting more than 48 hours than usual or it's more severe than usual and it's in more areas than usual, usually if you just get... DOMS in your hamstrings, but now it's in your quads, in your calves and those sorts of things. That could be an early sign for an injury. It's not an injury per se because it's the healthy type of muscle soreness, but could start raising some flags. The other two relate more to subjective, I guess objective data as well, but is your sleep and is stress. So researchers do sleep questionnaires and stress questionnaires, and they find that there's a correlation between if you have a lag in your sleep, like a 14-day lag, then your risk of getting injured that next week increases. We know that if you take questionnaires like lifestyle, well-being questionnaires and show that you're more stressed than usual, it's elevating your risk of an injury in the future. And so these are great warning signs. Fatigue, muscle soreness, stress, and sleep. These are things that you can watch out for. And if there's some time in the year, some time in your training where all of those four are popping up at once, definitely change your training. You need to dramatically change something because that means like an injury is just around the corner if you ignore those things and continue pushing on.
0: Yeah. So, in your experience and and from, you know, the research that that you've done and, and the people you've spoken to, with the sleep, I find that it it almost becomes a little bit of a chicken versus egg scenario and, you know, the stress contributes to poor sleep and the poor sleep contributes to stress, and, and it sort of just snowballs for a lot of people. When we're talking about injury specifically, is there one versus the other that you would say is sort of driving that process? Or, or is it a little bit of a chicken and an egg scenario? So is it like the, the sleep is contributing to injury risk, or the early injury is causing us to have poorer sleep?
1: Uh, it depends on the person. Okay. I don't because people can be affected by sleep without like right now, let's just say you have a newborn baby, not really stress, but you just have to wake up and, you know, attend to the baby. That's that's not because of injuries, not because of stress. It's just because it's just what you have to do. I myself over the past couple of years, like struggle with sleep. I, I have some really good patches, but Sometimes when my sleep is negatively impacted, it's not because of stress, it's because of excitement or like, you know, a new project that I'm working on or, you know, different business ideas. That's what really gets my mind racing and I'll wake up with a new idea and I just can't get back to sleep and like those sorts of things. But totally to your point, I deal with injured runners that are stressed because they're injured. They're worried, anxious, all that sort of thing, purely based on that injury. When their injury gets better and starts getting better. They might still be worried about a flare-up, and so the stress still hangs around. Um, depends on any, everyone's default state, because someone can be injured and actually focus a lot on the positives, and they can actually have a good experience with their rehab. They're learning a lot. But someone can be injured, and it is just the worst thing in the world. They fixate on all the negatives and the anxiety-driven stuff. They get depressed. they you know they run for their mental health, and they can no longer do that. And so that's really spirals out of control. And so you need to pick your patient. You need to pick what those drivers are, what the default states are and come up with strategies to address that. Because my strategy is just to, if I wake up and I'm really wired to listen to some like guided meditation or um, those sorts of things to really calm myself. But if someone's stressed and also losing sleep, then you might need to address the stress, which might, you know, come along the lines of positive thinking, you know, having some sort of routine where you're focusing on the positives and affirmations and all that sort of stuff rather than just a guided meditation that's something like that might be more effective and tailored to that person
0: yeah yeah I uh, have cats and I often (laughs) question why we keep nocturnal pets in our homes when they are uh, waking me up at at three o'clock in the morning some nights but uh, yeah that's great and so on that topic of soreness and, and kind of good versus bad and, and kind of how to know the difference and, and where that, that threshold lies. And, you know, from what I'm hearing, it definitely sounds like it's going to depend person to person and kind of what their norms are. But you had um, posted about this just on your Instagram a couple days before we're recording this episode. And I thought that was a perfect um, sort of topic to cover on on this episode. And something that I know a lot of people struggle with is just kind of knowing where is that line? Like, how do we tell the difference between good pain versus bad pain, delayed onset muscle soreness and those early injury processes? And then sort of, you know, to take that question one step further, when should someone, you know, kind of take a rest day or maybe just push through that little bit of of minor discomfort? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah,
1: it's, it's a good topic. Um, it's actually... You know, it might be hard to visualize. Actually, a couple of months ago now, I actually did a YouTube video on this where I had this Venn diagram because that sort of illustrates because there are a lot of um, crossover characteristics between good and bad pain. And so it's not just- We can just... link
0: to that. We can okay, link to that in yeah. the show notes.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Let's start with good pain. So the good pain, as we've sort of talked about before, is the delayed onset muscle soreness. DOMs, what we call it. And we need that because when we challenge our body, when we challenge our capabilities, you know, it's strenuous. And it's, we sort of want to just push, like dip our toes into something that's a bit too challenging and then back off and recover just so the body recognizes that strain and says, hey, you're pushing me pretty hard. Let me adapt and let me become stronger so that that's easier next time. And how we do that is we strain the muscle, we strain the tendons, the ligaments and everything, and then we go through this recovery process and purely in the muscles there presents this DOMS, which is that pro- that healthy process to get stronger. It's necessary. Uh, so let's break that down just so we can highlight what the good pain is. So DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. So the delayed means that it comes on usually the next day or the day after that. Research will say it comes on 24 to 48 hours afterwards. My DOM sometimes comes on 12 hours afterwards. And like it depends on the person, depends on their genetic makeup and all those sorts of things, but it's a delayed onset. The next part is muscle soreness. So this is where we talk about the location of those symptoms. So if it's delayed in onset and it's also um, a widespread muscle area, then we have like our suspicions that it is, you know, this good type of healthy uh, soreness. The bad kind of soreness can be outside of those parameters. So you can get pain during a run, which, uh, you know, isn't DOMS because it's not that delayed onset. You can get pain straight after a run, which isn't really delayed onset. It's not like 24 hours. So that can be um, an issue. Mm, And the location of that pain, it could be right on the tendon it could be on bone it could be um like a pinpoint like the muscle soreness the good type of muscle soreness is usually widespread fake most people have experienced it it's their whole hamstring it's their whole quads it's like this you can like put your hand over that entire area whereas an in injury is not always but more like focal more like pinpoint mm. i've got pain here and they'll point to one spot and it's usually a bit more sharp in nature if you point to a tendon it's not delayed onset muscle soreness. It can't be because it's on the tendon, more heading to the direction of bad pain. But this is where there's some crossover because tendons can have a delayed onset of symptoms. You can do a speed session or a heel session and wake up and your Achilles be really sore the next day. And you're thinking, is this Dom's? That's where we fall back to the location. If it's in the Achilles, that is a tendon and is not a muscle. And that's sort of a tendon overload, which relevance, and so this that that completed that Venn diagram, like this good pain, this injury, and what these innocent niggles are, and then sort of evaluating whether you should get it assessed or not. That's um, sort of what the video is all about, and yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky to navigate. You need to talk, look at the location, the characteristics, what you did the day before. You sort of need to combine all of these. The history and the symptoms and sort of calculate what we think it is but hopefully that's some some guidelines that people can follow
0: yeah that's great and I think it definitely also makes a good case for having a professional that you can talk to about this stuff you know like having someone that if you are unsure, and you have questions, you can connect with someone to to say, you know, here's where my pain is, this is when it started, this is what I've been doing and and sort of run through these different, you know, training load uh, assessments, and then also lifestyle assessments and and just kind of get that overview of what's been happening to get a effective and and also personalized kind of plan. And, And maybe sometimes the answer is, you know what? It doesn't sound like something that we need to take action on right now. But hey, you know, pay attention to it. If it gets worse, then then let me know or things like that. Or when is it time to really, you know, okay, we need to do a more thorough assessment and, and maybe there is an injury process happening here. And I think when mm. people are kind of relying on just public community spaces or, or just like running friends or, you know, sort of people who maybe don't have a, a lot of the education around some of this stuff, if, if that's where they're getting their advice from, it can really
1: running or doing a task with DOMS affects your performance, doesn't increase your risk of injury um, unless it's so severe that it's like hindering your mechanics, but very rarely is that the case. So you can do it, but just make sure it's light, make sure it's easy. Um, Don't push yourself because you, you still need to, you're still in that recovery phase. We still need that recovery phase and that could be a short, easy run. It could be cross training. You can do those things, but if you're unsure, that's where it becomes a little bit tricky. And the, the other characteristic of DOMS, this good pain, is how long it lasts for. Usually it lasts two to three days max if you're – well, four days max if, you're, um, if you've if you really pushed yourself and maybe your recovery is a bit subpar. But I've had people message me or jump on calls with me and say, oh, is this DOMS? Is it – I'm not too sure. It's like in the muscles. And I'm like, okay, how long have you had it for? And they say six weeks. And <laughs> – <laughs> it's obviously not going to be that good pain. I think they're trying to convince themselves so that they can keep running. But Everything's you know, fine. <laughs> yeah, three to four days should completely subside. And if it returns and it keeps coming back, then it's probably going to fall within that injury realm, that injury category, which you need to be careful of. And you can continue to run with an injury, but it needs to follow very precise guidelines. Um, we could talk about that now, but um, it's also outlined in the book
0: chapters that you had in the book that is is something that I had not really given as much thought to before and, and I thought was so interesting. And I love that you shared some, some research that's been done on this area around a runner's mindset when they're injured and how that can impact their recovery time. So, can you can you share a little bit more about you know this and and sort of what's in the book about that running mindset and and sort of that that injury mindset and if you've got a few suggestions for people who are really struggling with their outlook on things when they're injured, what can we maybe do to improve that uh, improve that mindset mentality?
1: Yeah, there's there's kind of two parts to this. One is actually developing an injury we know that mindset personality traits are are closely linked to developing an injury like we have people do surveys where they find that those have higher personality traits more towards perfectionism and more specific perfectionistic concerns rather than like perfectionistic strivings so a perfectionistic concern might be i'm worried if i get injured what people will think of me or letting down my team if i don't do this if i if I slack off or if I don't give it my all, you know, what am I going to think of myself? Like those are perfectionistic concerns. If you raise high in that, you have a significantly increased risk of injury compared to someone who doesn't have doesn't rank high on that score. Um, that is that score.
0: fascinating.
1: Yeah. And so um, research directly points to that. Um, so that's developing an injury. We also have research to know that when you're injured – your mindset, your attitude, your emotions, fears, anxieties—all play an influence on how fast you recover. Which I sort of think takes a whole bunch of different directions to why they, why that's correlated, but also points into my fascination with the brain. Pain's very complex. Um, the brain's very complex, and if, if those who have listened to my podcast before know that I've done a whole series on pain science, I've. Interviewed pain researchers. And just because it's a fascination of mine, I'm constantly learning about the brain and how it produces pain and perceives pain, and all those sorts of things. Also, hormones. Like if you're stressed, if you're anxious, if you're worried, um, not only is the brain getting really wired up and fired to go, but it also releases a lot of uh, stress hormones that hinder your ability to recover. So there's a lot of things there. And um, one paper in particular looked at catastrophization and looked at having a a group of people with knee pain looking at even before they've started rehab do some questionnaires to see like you know where their heads at what are they thinking about this injury and those who are ranking highly on catastrophization meaning that someone might say I have this knee pain am I ever going to run again am I going to end up in a wheelchair am I ever going to race again like what about if I can't get back to speed work what about if I can't bend over to pick up my kids what about if i can't work what about and like this is uh an exaggeration of outcomes based on symptoms it's producing a lot of anxiety it's producing the brain to hold a lot of relevance to this to this injury and say we really need to take care of this let's really sensitize this area let's really um get these nerves firing and okay. just based on attitude as well, like if people are really catastrophizing, they're really fearful to do things. They're really fearful to do a squat or do an exercise or return to running. And they tend to really decondition themselves. And with decondition comes pain amplification. They really spiral out of control. This is just based on their their outcomes. But this, this paper would look at people who do the same rehab at the same time. So they could have a group that have the same like kind of injury, they split them off into, well, they do questionnaires and they take the ones who are have this, uh, catastrophization characteristics and they just follow them compared to the ones that don't. And they go, they all go through the same rehab and the ones who are high on that catastrophization, they take four times as long to recover. Their pain experience throughout that is like so much higher. So they'll have like a a five, six, seven out of ten pain throughout that entire rehab process, whereas the others are like a a two, one, two, threes. So not only are the people that are more optimistic, are recovering quicker, but their pain their pain is less. And so explains clearly that like you know personality traits and those sorts of things. Kinesiophobia is another one, which is kinesiophobia is a fear of movement irrelevant to like pain. So like you might. Have knee pain and be really fearful to go upstairs, even though there's no pain when you, or there's low levels of pain when you go up the stairs. You're really anxious to do it. That is what we call kinesiophobia, and that is also closely linked to poorer and more delayed recovery outcomes. And so, you know, you you two-parted this question with what can people do about it. Um, I think people can do a lot about it. Um, it's very, very tough if someone has. Anxiety, depression as like their default state. Like, I constantly work with runners who really struggle. They've had de- depression, anxiety in the past. Um, that's, it's almost like their default state. And it's really hard to break that habit, break that pattern, because if you have had depression, anxiety tendencies in the past, and that is your default state, and then you get injured, you're starting on the back foot a little bit. You're sort of starting your rehab journey with this handbrake on and wondering, how you can accelerate the rehab process You sort of need to rewire how you think you need to rewire what to do. And that's where um, you can try some psychological strategies, positive thinking, positive affirmations, um, distraction, all these sorts of things. But I think people can really learn, seek it as an opportunity when someone does get injured, flip the switch to say, this is like my path that I'll go down. I'll become stronger because of it. I'm going to learn so much about my body, going to learn so much about my injury, I'm now switching my identity from a runner to a rehabber. This is what I'm going to focus on. These are the goals I have. This is the plan I'm going to lay out. And all of that starts to calm down the the anxieties and actually focuses on more the positive outcomes. And, yeah, it just makes the whole overall experience not only quicker but, you know, more enjoyable or tolerable. And so, yeah, that's what I'd say on that.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think that, you know, around the the mindset –
1: It is very high and reassurance is needed a lot of times, but sometimes people can go down a path that actually confirms their beliefs that it is irreparable and they can, you know, go to a doctor or a health professional and say, oh, you're injured because you have one leg longer than the other. Oh, you're injured because (laughs) your glutes don't switch on. Oh, we've scanned your knees and you have arthritis and you probably shouldn't run. Like all of these things are, have been busted in the research, you know, for decades. But it still gets leaked into the uh, the runner. The runner just gets told these things, and they don't know the research. They don't know that if you have a leg longer than the other, then you fit within ninety percent of the population. They don't know that you know osteoarthritis shows in fifty um, percent of the population above the age of thirty five. They don't know these sort of things, and what they've been told and the narrative they're given sort of can spiral out of control and can like spark a bunch of these narratives and um, misconceptions, which is why I try to reveal these on the podcast and get people on, show people the research, you know, talk to the researchers um, because people need to know these things. If you just have that reassurance, if you have that education, you can start your rehab with a, you know, a better foot, a better understanding, a a bit more of a calmed mind. And then instead of being like, well, I'm destined to get injured because I have one leg longer than the other or I'm destined to, for this knee pain to get worse because it's osteoarthritis, and osteoarthritis doesn't get better. If that's your outlook, then um, you know it's going to be a real struggle. And if you're told, the, if you're educated on the reality, then people have a, a lot more optimism.
0: Yeah, and and sort of flippantly being told sometimes, you know, oh well, running is bad for your knees or if your knees hurt when you squat then don't do squat like you're you're sort of given all of these limitations on well if it hurts when you do that activity you need to stop doing that activity when in fact, if someone is shown maybe how to do that activity properly with the appropriate load and maybe modifications to form is needed to rebuild strength, then yes, we we can squat and, and run and lunge and, and, you know, do all kinds of things with our bodies. But it's not about just going back to the gym and loading up the barbell all over again and, you know, jumping back in where maybe you were a few months ago.
1: Yeah, totally agree.
0: Yeah, so talking about squats and and strength training and, and rehabilitation, um, something else that uh, that you mentioned in the book that I thought was really interesting was you know around the conversation with strength training and you know the research being a little bit you know less clear and and sometimes you see that sort of pulled to the forefront. Uh, to say, oh, well, you know, there there's not strong evidence that that strength training makes a difference. But I, I loved your perspective on that as, as to why we may see that difference in different sports. So the benefits of strength training for runners and how it can help with, you know, injury prevention, in your opinion, but then also where it fits into that rehabilitation plan.
1: Yeah, for sure. And this is one of my big passions as well, um, talking about strength training, because I think a lot of runners – Get it wrong. Um, There are plenty (laughs) of ways you can be a bit more efficient when you go into the gym. Uh, So on the injury prevention side of things, um, the evidence is skimpy in terms of the structure that is required and the amount of robust research that is required um, hasn't stacked up yet. There just there hasn't been science done. Um, There hasn't been. It's not that there's evidence showing that strength training. Doesn't prevent injuries. There's nothing to confirm it though, and so what I bring that down to is based on the the study design that's required is like you know really tough to do. The amount of the sample size that's required needs to be enormous because injuries are so multifactorial. Like we've talked about, there's so many different influences: um, speed, terrain, duration, shoes, all that sort of stuff, and um, because there is so many factors you need a really large sample size to try and say with confidence that this will do and that's where it's really tricky but there are there is research to show in if you hone in and scope on say one specific injury type then there are because we're sort of scoping down and we can do smaller sample sizes we do know that strength training helps reduce the um, knee pain for example We know that it helps shin splints, for example, um, plantar fasciitis, those sorts of things, and um, just not globally as a whole. But in theory, it makes a ton of sense that you need to do strength training to reduce your risk of injury because we're going back to load versus capacity. If you can find something throughout your week to uh, increase your capacity, if you do squats, calf raises, lunges, deadlifts, those sorts of things. You're raising the capacity of the important muscles that you need and joints and bones that you require to withstand more running loads. So just going purely back to physiology and that load versus capacity model, which all injuries should focus on, uh, it makes a ton of sense why strength training is important. It's also as a bit of a cherry on top. It really shows there's a lot of robust research to show that strength training improves your running performance. And it might, you know, be counterintuitive, but it's it shows that it carries over into marathon times, like the slow endurance stuff. If you get super heavy in the gym and you're getting really good at lifting heavy weights, you will have a benefit in your marathon times that is clearly outlined in the research. And so, you know, like I say, the research itself is a bit skimpy when it comes to injury prevention, but what runner doesn't want to improve their performance and it's just the the cherry on top with really robust evidence that that will carry over
0: yeah absolutely and too when you sort of look at like research study design you know in in fields like physiotherapy and and stuff like that you know to have a a double blind type of study well it, you can't do a blinded strength training study because there's no placebo or, you know, kind of the control group for some of these things. So you're, you're really limited also in terms of just having like, you know, this, this sort of double blind randomized control trial data for, for a lot of this stuff. Again, it's not that there's evidence to show that it's harmful or that it doesn't work. It's just, it's not as cut and dry as research in other areas or, you know, other types of uh, interventions that we might look at.
1: Yeah, for sure. And we look at big, like, systematic reviews. I- I've read so many systematic reviews and the conclusion is we need more research. <laughs> and Every so time. a systematic review is when you get, like, a whole bunch of different studies that have already been published and you compile all those studies that have a common theme and then you try and draw a conclusion from that. And it just, you know, at the end, we need more higher quality studies. And so um, it's it just goes to show that it's, it's tough to do. It really is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, just, just a little bit of, I guess I call it a a cheeky question based on, you know, the conversation around strength training and, um, you know, marathon training times and stuff like that. We, we hear a lot and, and it's sort of just generally out there in the running space that we shouldn't be increasing our mileage by more than about 10% per week, just, just as a very general rule. Would you see an opportunity if someone were adding in, you know, a, a good amount of strength training, and maybe we'll call it like three three good strength training sessions per week, would that allow that person to potentially exceed that 10% mileage rule safely or, or more safely than somebody who didn't have the strength training as part of their program? Does it kind of allow for, for a little bit more flexibility with that 10% rule?
1: Okay, so you're asking if someone does do strength training, could they maybe... Um have a little bit less restriction and maybe go to 15 or 20 percent increase is that what you're yeah, asking
0: but potentially
1: yeah i would say um probably probably a little bit more wiggle room because you have a greater yeah. capacity but you do want to be careful and make sure that you're listening to your body to see if you can tolerate those those loads because uh running's very different to strength training and why we have I agree. Like the ten percent rule is quite generic and does have some limitations, but you know, for a runner who doesn't have a coach and who wants to take it like a conservative option, I think ten percent's pretty good to fall on. The idea with the ten percent rule is that most running-related injuries are due to overload, and so it's due to a repetitive nature over and over and over again when you impact the ground. That's two to three times your body weight that ripples through your bones, ligaments, muscles, um, every single step that you take, done thousands, tens of thousands of times. And the certain muscles, like every time that you plant the ground and push off, your soleus muscle in your calf works six to eight times your body weight. So enormous loads. And we want to make sure that those loads aren't quickly accumulated to develop an overuse injury. That's why those sort of rules exist and making sure we have a really nice balance there and that we're hitting that adaptation zone. But strength is completely different. So strength looks different in terms of the loads applied on the body, the time, like the time under tension, all those sorts of things looks completely different. Um, So I know this isn't part of your question, but if you're a runner that's doing 10% per week, don't think that just because you implement strength training that you need to go to 5% per week just because it's a weekly Mm -hmm. accumulation of load. You can still um, factor in running as an isolated variable, but... It depends where in the training cycle they are. Like, if they're doing 50 miles per week or like, you know, 80 kilometers per week and they increase 10% each week for four weeks, that's quite a big ramp up. But if they're doing, you know, 10 kilometers a week or, you know, five miles per week and they want to increase by 10%, again, like that's a different equation. So, yes, strength training will allow you to be a more resilient runner because you're exposing your body and adapting your body to different loads. You become, it's a different energy bucket that you are now resilient to. So you will have a little bit of more wiggle room in your um in your running, but just respect that the loads that go through your body when you do run is completely different and you should be, you know, cautious and listen to your body.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and so sort of to, you know, piggyback off that question, you know, if we're talking specifically about adaptation zone and, and a runner who really wants to increase that adaptation zone you know, as efficiently as possible, we'll say, uh, for whatever reason, is there one or the other that, you know, really you feel provides that bigger return? Is it the gradual buildup of mileage that is, is sort of, you know, really supporting that increase in adaptation zone, or is it the strength training that, you know, or, or is it really both and, and the combination of two that you think that runners really need?
1: Yeah. When you ask that question, the first thing I think of it depends on the type of runner, how much mileage they're doing. Um, yeah. Let's just say they're running six times a week. You won't become stronger, faster, better, and reg- and like lower your risk of injury if you go from six days a week to seven days a week. That's like right. <clears throat> it's it's an overload stuff or like just running more in those six days. If you're already doing that you need to either like replace one of those days with a strength training day and you are going to reap better rewards. But if someone's a beginner runner, they're running two times a week, they're not doing any strength training, uh, but they want to become a better runner. Their best next step is probably to increase their frequency of their running. Um, Mm -hmm. So go from two times a week to maybe four times a week. um, Gradually, as the body builds up and you do want to make sure that if you add a day, you're not exceeding your weekly mileage too much. So if you're running 10 kilometers, if you're doing two, five kilometer runs and you want to implement a third day, you can do three or four kilometer runs throughout that. So you're reducing your overall hack, the adaptation zone. It is increasing the amount of frequency. It's not increasing the volume. It's not increasing the speed and all that sort of stuff. It is increasing the frequency throughout your week. If you go from three times a week to four times a week to five times a week, that is giving you five more opportunities for your body to be like, what is this? Oh, it's running. Oh, I kind of like this stimulus. Oh, let's become a better runner. (laughs) And it's sort of waking up the senses and how the body should move, the impacts it should have, the mechanics and all that sort of stuff, your cardiovascular system and sort of triggering and waking up that, that your body to become that thing. Because your body yeah. does an amazing job of if you put it in a certain environment, you do it often, you do it like in, a, in that adaptation zone, you're going to adapt to do that thing better. That's why swimmers have big shoulders. That's why, you know, rock climbers have incredible grip strength. It's why runners have good cardiovascular systems. It's like the more you do it, the body's going to recognize and say, I need to become better at this because I want it to be a bit easier next time. And so give it more opportunities throughout the week.
0: I love that. Oh, wonderful. So, on that note, um i I really thought the book was so, so great. Like you know, Thank you. for someone who works with runners, like you know, as a professional in this space, I found it really helpful, you know, to fill in the the gaps that aren't my background and area of expertise. And I think to the way that you uh, lay it out and and sort of tell the story and even share some of your own personal experience with this stuff it is, you know, really laid in a way that I think that the average runner sort of consumer can understand as well. So I think that every runner should read this book, no matter how new or experienced you are. So tell us where people can find your book and order a copy for themselves.
1: Yeah. So the title is Run Smarter. Um, Brody Sharp author, if you type in those, um, you should be able to find it. It's available uh, almost every online store, I believe. It's not in like a libraries or like bookstores and those sorts of things. But pretty much anywhere online, Amazon's probably the most popular. If you go search on there, you should be able to find it.
0: Wonderful. And tell us a little bit more about your podcast and where people can find that and listen to all the great things that you share on there.
1: So again, same title, the Run Smarter Podcast. And if you're interested in doing that, um, the first 10 episodes of my podcast have 10 universal principles to reduce your risk of injury. So there's a few things we've talked about today plus a couple of added elements sort of sets you up really well for working out where where your weak links might be or if you are injured exactly what you should do in your training to help better negotiate a swift recovery then i dive into other series i dive into researchers i've interviewed you which those episodes have been fantastic because you know nutrition's always a, a big fascinating popular topic on the podcast but we delve into any way you can Run smarter, train smarter, rehab smarter. It's all about um, just becoming a better runner in general.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much again for for sitting down and, and sharing all of your wisdom and expertise with us today. And uh, for everyone listening, we will see you in the next episode. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not to be used or relied upon for the diagnosis or treatment of any health condition. This information does not create a client practitioner relationship and should not be used as a substitute for professional medical advice.